Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show for Western Society of Graduate Students. I'm your host, Tanya. And I'm your other host, Nick. And today we have Curtis Turnbull joining us. He is a PhD student in the Department of Biology. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy you're here, but I'm wondering if you're as happy because you just came back from a pretty awesome adventure from New Zealand. Yeah, so I had uh, I had a good opportunity to do some travel research. Um, so I uh, packed up my things and I headed off from Canada all the way down to New Zealand. Um, and I get to spend three months down there working with a corporation, kind of doing a little bit different things than I'm used to in my thesis. So it was a, it was a good time, yeah. And why don't you tell us how that came to be? So wh- what kind of work do you do here at Western? And then how did you, uh, how did that transition to be involved with the work in New Zealand? So typically during my thesis, I'm, I'm part of a lab that works on kind of insect physiology generally. And kind of our major focus is overwintering biology, as well as uh, kind of covering things like how do insects survive our kind of harsh Canadian winters? Um, and what are the consequences for what they experience through the winter? Um, and so I'm working on a corn pest, which is the western bean cutworm, um, and it's it's rapidly expanded into Canada over the last couple of years. And one question we are asking is is changing winters kind of driving that expansion? Um, and so it has an applied kind of bent to it, but at the same time, I'm really interested in that basic biology. What are they doing in winter, and kind of how are they surviving it? So yeah, in going to New Zealand, kind of the question I was after is um, is you know how can I work on a more applied thing? And so. The way we arrange this is that we use this technique in the lab called flow-through respirometry. Um, and so respirometry is a technique to kind of measure what insects are breathing out and what they're breathing in. So just like us, they're breathing in oxygen and they're breathing out carbon dioxide. Um, and from these measurements, we can actually get their metabolic rate, right? So we use what they breathe out and what they breathe in as a proxy for metabolic rate. Um, and so based on kind of this technique we did, um, a research corporation in New Zealand, Plant and Food, reached out to our lab to basically say, you know, you guys are experts in this technique. It's kind of stock and trade for our lab. Um, would you be willing to kind of send a graduate student down to do this technique with us? Because we have, we really need it for this particular problem. Um, and so the problem they needed it for is related to fumigation. So as, as kind of similar to Canada, New Zealand has a lot of forestry. So they're transporting logs out of the country. Um, and as we know, as we increasingly move things across the world, across the globe, we have to be kind of careful about invasive insects. So these insects infest these logs, we put them on ships, we send them to other nations, right? Um, and the big way we deal with this is fumigants. Now with these fumigants, um, some of them kind of have unintentional effects on our environment, right? And so a big one is methyl bromide. Um, and this, this fumigant methyl bromide, um, depletes the ozone layer of our planet, right? Um, And so many nations are looking to ban it as we go forward. Um, So kind of why I was brought in was to try to understand um, the conditions under which these fumigants uh, kind of affect the respiratory physiology of insects. And so these fumigants really have the purpose to limit these kind of insects from um, traversing the globe in unwanted ways. Why is that a problem for insects to go across the globe like this? Well, so the kind of thing is that we have, we have in Canada, we have a, an important forestry sector, right? And so some of these pests, um, if they get onto, say, anything from wood pallets to lumber and they're brought into a different country, um, they have the potential to leave those, those um, pallets, um, get into our forestry sector and affect our industry, right? Um, and so part of kind of these international agreements, um, all countries agree to kind of fumigate these products coming in and out of their country, right? Um, 
And the problem with the standard is that the fumigant that we have that's effective, methyl bromide, has this kind of uh, detrimental effect on the environment, right? So it's depleting the ozone layer. And so as part of kind of an agreement that exists between all nations, uh, we're trying to get rid of it by 2020 or seriously reduce it. Um, the issue there is that the alternatives we currently have, we don't really understand how they work in insects, um, and we don't really understand uh, under which conditions they may be more or less effective. Um, and so my role coming into this project was to try to understand how these fumigants, which enter through the respiratory system of the insect, might be affected by different factors. Um, so do you look at a specific insect when you do this? Yeah, so for the project, I was working on the golden-haired bark beetle, um, which is a, quite a tiny beetle um, that's uh, spread throughout the world. So it was originally from Europe, and because maybe we haven't always been so on top of our pest management game, they've spread throughout most of the world. Uh, currently not in Canada, so fingers crossed <laughs> there. Um, but it's a problem in New Zealand. And so when New Zealand cuts kind of their pine, uh, these insects infest the logs, they lay their eggs in there, and then they spread throughout under the bark. The issue there is that um, other countries will refuse to accept those logs if they haven't been treated before they leave New Zealand. Um, and so a big part of what New Zealand does right now is use this methyl bromide to treat them within the hull of ships as they're leaving. Um, so yeah, these insects are they're particularly um, problematic in that uh, if we're switching to these new fumigants, we actually don't know how effective they are against the species. Um, and what the kind of different environmental conditions that might affect that. So I have a question about this beetle in particular. So we're very interested in finding new fumigants for it. Mm -hmm. But what would happen if we just decided to stop using these fumigants? What is the larger consequence there? Like if we didn't use those fumigants, like what is the actual need for them? Would it cause like environmental damage? So with this particular pest, the golden hair bark beetle is kind of a it's an interesting one in that it has kind of minimal damage on the actual wood product itself. Um, so it's mostly just a, a market access issue and the fact that we have an agreement that says we're going to treat all of this type of plant, which is pine, leaving um, for all kind of insects, right? So that we're not spreading potentially invasive things. Um, the problem is that even if you know it causes minimal damage to this particular product in this particular country, you don't want to introduce it into another country where there may be different species that right. it can spread to. We, there's lots of on-scene consequences there. Um, so a big part of this is, is kind of being good neighbors in an international community, and that means kind of keeping up these standards for fumigation. Um, so with this particular insect, the consequences may not be necessarily that awful, but you can look at other things in Canada like uh, Asian longhorn beetle or emerald ash borer that have been particularly damaging to our country. And of course, if we could go back in time and prevent them from invading our country, we would have, right? And so when you're when these um, logs are being transported, typically that would be something that's done at sea then. So is, is the fumigation supposed to sort of um, be done before or do you test it at sea? How does it work? So typically it's done kind of leaving port. Mm -hmm. um, it, can, it can be problematic in Canada, for example, because low temperatures tend to be less effective. Um, but in New Zealand, they can do it out at sea, right, on the way to typically their Asian trading partners. Um, and so what happens is the logs are kept in the hull of the ship, so they're down below or in the hold, sorry. Um, and in this hold, they apply the fumigant out at sea. All of the crew is, of course, away from the fumigant at that time. Um, and then they do it for a set duration based on kind of standards they've set over the years using scientific testing. Um, and what they find is after that period of time, you can guarantee you get, you know, 99% efficacy. And you're assuming that all of the insects are dead at that point. Then when it arrives at port, someone will accept that product, right? And then you can trade it within your country, et cetera. Um, so when you say the efficacy of the, the fumigant, that means that there's a certain amount of 
beetles that are not there. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, the kind of the tricky thing with all of these insects, even if you're looking at one particular species, um, is that each life stage might be a little different in its tolerance. So you may have one particular life stage that's quite tolerant, and you may have others that are quite susceptible to the fumigant. And we measure this in terms of mortality. So we'll, mm. you know, the, the, the classic way to develop the, and this is kind of what I was doing with uh, a plant and food, is you, you start out doing what's called naked fumigation. So you start out with the insect itself, um, and you're applying the fumigant to them just in open air. And you look at the percent that die for each life stage, right? And typically that's kind of the first step, and it gives you some information about which life stage is most likely to survive. Um, but it gets increasingly complicated as you kind of try to bring it closer and closer to the real-world application. Um, so we have, for example, uh, the next step is that you have them in the logs and looking at how the fumigant is absorbed through the logs and then how much actually reaches the insect. Um, and it all becomes even more complicated when you think that these things are happening in the hall of ships. Mm. Um, and we might like to think that the hall of ships is similar to our laboratory and being very kind of standard conditions. But what really happens is you have all of these logs and they may be cut, but they're still respiring. So they're still consuming oxygen and producing CO2. And so the atmosphere of these halls are changing rapidly during those fumigations, and that can have some unforeseen or, uh, consequences for the, um, the efficacy of these fumigants. And so uh, why I was brought in was really to look at that problem of when these conditions change out at sea, how is that affecting the efficacy of the fumigant? Mm -hmm. And so when you, um, I guess at the first stage that you mentioned, that first in this controlled environment, you're kind of seeing... Um, you can kind of play with the environment. You can change what, what's happening. And depending on the stage of life of these insects, there would be a different effect. So is there a stage of life of these beetles that was maybe most sensitive? Uh, so what we found is that the, the adults and the larvae, so kind of like you might know from any other insects that go through metamorphosis, so you have this larval stage, um, you have this pupal stage, which is kind of the still resting stage in between, and then you have an adult beetle, which we're kind of all familiar with. Um, and so we tested each of these stages looking at the, the efficacy of the fumigant against them. And what we found is that the pupil stage is really this kind of almost a tank when it comes to fumigant, right? Um, so the concentration of the fumigant had to be much higher and the duration of exposure had to be much longer, even mm. in the lab. Um, so under those standard conditions, you kind of get an idea for where your target of concern is when you actually try to extend this to kind of a real-world application. And would it be, I guess, in the real-world application, if you kind of figure out the highest amount of concentration you need for these pupils, you're assuming you're getting the pupils and all the beetles in other stages because your concentration is high? Yeah, so that, that was kind of the approach um, working with plant and food is that we're looking for this most tolerant life stages and what kind of adaptations it might have for different atmospheres that provide that most tolerant, um, or uh, most the highest tolerance to the uh, fumigant. Mm -hmm. And then how do you go about testing this now in a ship or um, even just at the logs? Right. Your lab. So I guess kind of the, the way we work through it is all about these different scales, right? So the first was just finding uh, in the lab under standard conditions which stage is most tolerant, right? Um, the next thing is to kind of look at conditions that might affect the efficacy in the ships before we extend to larger scales. So uh, part of what I was doing was uh, looking at, as I said, those ships, you have these changing atmospheres inside of them. How is that affecting the efficacy of the fumigant? Um, and so for me, what I was doing is using this technique, respirometry, where I'm measuring the metabolic rate of the insects to see how does that metabolic rate change as oxygen is depleted in their atmosphere. Um, and so at Plant and Food, I kind of, I had this setup where we could mix gases of different atmospheres, so change the level of oxygen that was the beetles were exposed to and see how their metabolic rate changes. Um, and so what we found is that 
For all stages, um, once you drop below about 5% oxygen, their metabolic rate starts to drop quite precipitously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this was interesting to us because we know that from the, the little literature available on some of these alternative fumigants that as metabolic rate drops, um, the, the ability of these insects to survive the fumigant goes up quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems that these low oxygen environments confer this ability to survive the fumigant. Um, and so we were looking at how their metabolic rate changed um, in these different atmospheres. And so that's kind of, that's where kind of my time in New Zealand wrapped up, was kind of finding that point, um, at what oxygen threshold are they below? Um, what's happening next, um, so with some of my colleagues over there, is they're going to fumigate above and below this threshold to see if that changes the efficacy of the fumigant. Right. Um, and why this information is useful to us is that we can then kind of provide people in the ship halls, here's the percent oxygen, that your ship needs to be above if you want to get efficacy with this particular beetle. So Mm. it kind of gives us this physiological threshold, but we can use it in an application sense to tell people out at sea, this is when you need to fumigate, is when you're above this concentration of oxygen. So it's kind of like this ironic loop where the very thing you're trying to protect is actually making it more difficult to fumigate, right? Because the wood is actually making the oxygen levels go down. Yes. So yeah. you kind of have, yeah, I guess you kind of have a, yeah, yeah. a situation where your your com- biology is kind of getting you on both ends and trying to solve this problem. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, you know, you've been studying this in the lab and you found the particular levels that, you know, we need to provide the fumigant for. Mm-hmm. And so now the lab is trying to look at whether to fumigate above or below certain thresholds. Yeah. So can you imagine um, what it would be like for people in the ships going forward? Do you think like there will be sort of like computer models that will detect the oxygen and then release fumigants at certain levels? Is that kind of where you expect it to go? We, we think it provides kind of a, a useful, so looking at when the metabolic rate starts to drop and what the consequences are for fumigation, uh, using that threshold is kind of, I, I think it's a nice benchmark to provide to them in the industry. Um, of course it has to be, like the proof of concept is kind of the work that's coming next. Um, But I think it's useful because others in the past have suggested like extremely high oxygenated environments as a as a approach. And as long as you find that it just needs to be above five percent, it's much cheaper than going up to say forty percent oxygen in a ship hall. Got it. And it doesn't have the risk of filling a ship with oxygen, which has potentially explosive effects. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a it's a I think a nice kind of piece of information to provide to the industry, and it's something that we're hoping will be a useful kind of threshold, not just for these particular insects and this particular ship kind of arrangement, um, but a threshold that we can consider for all types of different atmospheres that occur in stored plants, stored food that we send across and ship back and forth. So I can only imagine um, providing this sort of information to the end user. You can't just kind of do it once or twice. Um, How many times, I guess, in the lab environment did you have to do this to come up with a value of a potential threshold? And then moving forward, how long does this type of research typically take then? Yeah, so um, we kind of hit the ground running uh, when we got there. And... um, there's kind of a, it depends on kind of the technique you're doing, right? So with the actual fumigations and trying to determine that efficacy, you're looking for that percent mortality, which usually requires a large volume of insects. Uh, so the PhD student who I was kind of collaborating with over there, Jessica Divot, um, she had to rear, you know, thousands and thousands of these beetles. So she was, she's quite fond of them uh, <laughs> after all of that work. But um, for the respirometry, we tend to do, because we're measuring individual metabolic rates, we tend to use less individuals to determine those thresholds. 
Um, so we kind of have this situation where some of our research has kind of a large sample size per se, like thousands of insects. In other parts, you might see a, a sample size getting on the size of 20 to 30 per treatment group, right? So mm -hmm. it, can, it can vary depending on what you're doing. Um, a big part of what plant and food does, though, is scale this up as they go, right? So we start again with those simpler setups in the lab and kind of change some conditions to see how that affects. And then they do things like put people out on hulls of ships to measure how these concentrations change on different ships going across sea to kind of see how it is in the real world. And I'm interested in what your particular research actually looks like, because I'm imagining, you know, a lot of, um, of these beetles perhaps in a box and you, you know, you put in the fumigant and you watch how many beetles die. Is that kind of what it's like? Like, tell me what it looks like. So the fumigation itself looks very similar to that. So it's these sealed containers. Um, you're basically adding these different fumigants into them and then you're gassing off that fumigant. So when it's safe, you open it up and then you do a count to see who's alive and who's dead. Um, the respirometry itself, um, I always, I always like the joke that it looks like science because you have lots of tubes, you have lots of wires, you have lots of monitoring screens. Um, but basically all we have, if you put it in simplest terms, is a stream of air that's passed over the insect. You're looking at how much CO2 it's putting into that air and how much oxygen it's taking out. Uh, it. So it's, it's a relatively simple setup when you see it and basically same idea, small sealed containers. And so you've, you've mentioned respiration multiple times. Do beetles have a different respiratory system than let's say humans? Yeah, so unlike us, where we're breathing in oxygen through lungs and then that oxygen is passing through our blood and a circulatory system to all of our tissues, uh, insects are doing it kind of in a much different and arguably more efficient way, which is that they, uh, they have spiracles, which are these holes that go along the side of their bodies. Um, and oxygen diffuses from the atmosphere through these holes through a tracheal system down to every tissue. So the oxygen is actually reaching the tissue in a, in a gas, you know, through those tubes form. Um, and so that's an, that's an efficient system that they use, and that kind of partially explains the reason that we're seeing that threshold at, say, 5% oxygen and not somewhere higher, is that they're, they have quite an efficient system. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering now, your time in New Zealand, was it all beetles, or did you also get a chance to explore? Uh, so I, I did get a chance to do some exploring with the lab. Um, so we, I was on the North Island, um, so less mountainous, um, but still I got to see some, some volcanic sites. I got to see uh, go up to Auckland to see cool. some of the cities. Yeah, so it was, it was a good time. Um, there's definitely some interesting wildlife there, too, and I had uh, uh, a good good group of lab mates who were willing to take me out on a few hikes to see some of that. So what kind of wildlife? Um, I got to I got to feed some long fin eels, which are the I believe the largest eel in the world. So that was kind of fun. Um, and also some of the the bird wildlife was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Was this something coming into your PhD you knew you would do? No. So it's it's kind of um, it's something our supervisor in our lab here at Western uh, really likes to focus on is getting students to have experience kind of I don't want to say playing nice with others, but going to work with a different lab group and kind of seeing how science is done by other people. Right. Because uh, our lab has one particular way of doing science and you you kind of discover that different groups have different attitudes towards different aspects of kind of the daily grind of it. So, yeah. Yeah. So maybe. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like then for you to have that experience that your supervisor was hoping for you to have um, going into a new lab environment? And of course, it's a shorter time period than your four-year PhD. You only had three months. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely a different work environment. Like it's uh, plant and food research is a, is a crown corporation. You very much see people coming in kind of for work at the start of the day. And when you get to the end of the day, things kind of wrap up. And we know in grad school, sometimes that's not always the, the structure of life for a lot of people. <laughs> what is time? Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, 
so it was really nice that way. I think I think it's um, it has its its benefits. It's a very uh, you know you're very ready to work when you do arrive at those kind of you know nine to five hours, mm-hmm. um, and it has some drawbacks too, right? So it's I uh, I definitely kind of missed the ability to kind of stick into a project and go work a few later hours every once in a while. So <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely a different structure to things, but uh, yeah. And was New Zealand similar to Canada or was it different? Like, what did you notice about like the culture or even the work environment? Uh, so very similar culture, at least from my experience. I haven't done too, too much traveling, um, but very similar to Canada in a lot of ways. I mean, we're both former colonies, so there's <laughs> that. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the people were very, uh, very friendly. Um, and I think, I think it had a little more of a relaxed feel, um, not just the workplace, but people in general. So I... Uh, I'll, I'll probably be missing my time there for a while. Right. Yeah. And now that you're here, does your work sort of continue, but over overseas or? Yeah. So we're still we're still collaborating with the group, so still skyping with them weekly. Um, and so they're finishing up kind of the round of experiments, looking above and below that oxygen threshold. Um, but my role in it from going forward is kind of just doing the data analysis with mm-hmm. them and kind of going back and forth on the parts we've already done. So. Yeah, it's kind of nice to, to keep in touch, although we're always fighting that uh, time difference to find times <laughs> to communicate. Do you take turns for who has to wake up early? Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if we go late enough here, they can do early there. We find There's a nice time in between, so we take advantage of that. And I think it's important for everyone to kind of know that this isn't your thesis project, so you're also doing your actual PhD work. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about... Um, skills that you can share to manage those extra activities that are projects that we'd like to take on as students but also keeping a focus on our our goal in the beginning i guess yeah so i guess if if you're stepping outside to do a side project kind of for three months that is you're losing quite a bit of time on your thesis right that's kind of always you know in the back of your mind as you're working on these things um but finding ways to use skills that you've picked up in your PhD or th- information that you've learned or techniques um, and trying to apply them in a new context. So using information that you're you're picking up in your education to kind of be an expert outside of your education, I think is a good experience. Um, also just keeping in touch with your lab and keeping in touch with your supervisor back home kind of still keeps your PhD as a, as a priority while you're away. So it's you're still working on it even if you're not physically present. And did you kind of see uh, a, an effect now that you're back on your PhD work? Um, well, I've only been back for weeks, so right. <laughs> <laughs> catching up on sleep, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I haven't made too much uh, too much ground um, in that time. Mostly just getting adjusted to the the time schedule, yeah. of course. Um, I guess I meant in terms of like improved skills or a different sort of uh, view towards your work as well. Yeah, so I think I, I definitely have an appreciation for kind of. Um, we sometimes get in the university system, I think sometimes think about kind of the, the basic biology and we get really excited. And those things are very important, um, but it's nice to, to go to a place where people are really focused on kind of the end application and who they're helping. And so I think it's important um, in my own research to always remember who at the end of the day is, is kind of there to benefit from this work, mm-hmm. um, that it exists beyond the pages of my thesis kind yeah. of thing. So. so you kind of got firsthand experience with knowledge translation or really applying research into industry or into the real world. Yeah, and so I think it, it, it's, um, it, for me, it was nice to see and nice to keep in mind because I think uh, I always want to make sure the work I'm doing has some kind of benefit at the end of the day. And I, yeah, I'll, I'll keep that in mind going forward with my own research to make sure that we're finding those, those things that are useful to people. That's really exciting. Um, if anyone wanted to sort of learn more about 
your work, whether it's um, this project that you've taken on with your collaboration in New Zealand, but also if they were interested in learning more about just your PhD work, what would be a good place for them to go? Um, I guess I would direct people to kind of two locations. Um, one would be the probably the Sinclair Lab website. So just, I guess, just do a quick Google search <laughs> for uh, Brent Sinclair at Western. Um, and the other place, I guess, to find information about what I'm doing it may not be as active as it should be, but I do have a Twitter account, um, which is just at Curtis Turnbull, so my name. Awesome. Um, one more question. What do you miss most about New Zealand? Uh, so the cafeteria at work had some had a pretty good cake, which was called lolly cake. <laughs> um, and on my first day there, the lab kind of pulled me aside and like, you guys don't have this in Canada, so just come over here. And um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I'm missing it already. I, so. I thought he was going to say beetles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you didn't miss a thousand beetles in a box? No. I mean, I, I do miss them too. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, the lolly cake. Definitely need to go back for the lolly cake. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much, Curtis, for being on our show. Um, this was GradCast, the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students. We are on every Tuesday, but if you miss us or you want to catch up on our past episodes, you can listen to our podcast on gradcast.ca. Also, if you'd like to be our next guest, please email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Tanya, and I'm here with... Nicholas. And this was actually Nick's first show, so yay. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.